0: Hi, and welcome to ShowCast. Today, I'm joined by Claudine Boulanger and Patrick Goski from Silent Partner Studio in Montreal. Art director Claudine and 3D animator Patrick share how they created this year's virtual main stage for the VMAs. The VMAs was the first major awards show in the US to be broadcast since the pandemic. After realizing that a live awards show was off the cards silent partners found innovative ways to recreate the buzz of a live audience using video compositing techniques in this episode we'll find out how to optimize your virtual production like a boss brett bolton joins us to deliver some top tips and claudine and patrick get to hear the audience reaction to their virtual stage design so join us as we discuss accidental careers collaboration in the covid era and how to hit a look You're listening to The Notch Showcast. Hi, Claudine. Hi, Patrick. Hello. Hello. So how are you guys doing? Good.
1: Yeah, I think pretty good. You know, all things considered for the time.
0: So today we're going to talk about the VMAs. And this was a mammoth undertaking. And from what I understand as well, it was quite short notice because you guys were kind of holding out to see if it would end up taking place at the Barclays building. And, you know, as as time moved on, realized that it had to be kind of iterated into an entire virtual production. So we're going to talk about your workflow process today. and I'm really excited. Um, but first, before we go into that, I'd like to kind of get an idea of how you got to where you are today. And so, Claudine, you've had a really interesting and incredibly broad career so far. Can you tell me kind of where you started out? I know that you took an undergrad at the University of Montreal. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, well, I I actually started uh, first studying cinema in college or after high school. I don't know how you guys call it in in England. So, yeah, I did that. But back then, uh, animation, well, After Effects was just like, barely existing at the time, I think. So I didn't even know anything about animation. So after a cinema, studying cinema, I wasn't sure I wanted to continue in that path. So I decided to go study other stuff at university. So I did like literature, anthropology, art history, anything that could give me general culture. And then I think kind of some point during
0: that degree, you took an introduction to VJing. Was this kind of your move into creating visuals?
2: I was uh, always curious about uh, anything that was going on in that field, even though I was still not working or studying in it. So yeah, I I took that atelier at uh, La Sate, which is a place in Montreal where there is a big dome and they do a lot of r and D and stuff. It was super basic. It was really just out of curiosity so it didn't really lead me anywhere but mm-hmm. it just kept me interested in the subject I guess and when I finished my degree at university I then moved to Switzerland where I studied more specifically animation and graphic design and that kind of stuff.
0: And then kind of once you graduated you moved through the ranks at a few different live events branding and motion design agencies before joining Silent Partners.
2: Yeah. I started more in uh, advertising, like most graphic designers do, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always wanted to get away from it and more into like either artistic stuff or installation or scenography. Or I was, I, since I was a kid, I, w- I always wanted to work on shows.
0: What, what was the first live show that you saw as a kid that made you want to work on them?
2: Oh, good question. As a teenager, I would say uh, the first piece, theater piece I saw from uh, Robert Lepage, with, who is a really well known uh, worldwide as a director, that really struck me because it was a mix of theater and video and DJ and dancing and acrobatics. And I was like, wow, I've never seen anything like that. If all the mediums mixed together. And yeah, I think that was the when I really knew that I wanted to go that way. So when it comes to,
0: so obviously seeing live shows like that are really inspiring. Um, but for you as an art director, where do you gather your inspiration from?
2: Uh, really everywhere. I, I'm curious about everything. That's why I studied like in a lot of fields. And I think everything that you learn, nothing is lost. Everything is nourishing. I think everything comes together at some point. Even if you think that something is not going to be useful for you, then you realize five years later, you know, that it makes a link with that other thing. And life has its way to to link it all together. So what
0: was the first show that you and Patrick worked on together? Uh, I think it was TTE.
1: Which stands for Through the Echoes.
0: Yeah. Oh, Through the Echoes. Okay, cool. And that's the yeah. PY1. Nice.
1: And that one was, was the first time that I had ever used Notch as well. So, okay. It was it was a little bit of a trial by fire.
0: You kind of you describe yourself as a 3D generalist, Patrick, but you've got a specialism in in digital sculpting. One of the projects that I've seen of yours, Patrick that I really loved was um the modeled content that you created that was projected onto the Sydney Opera House for the yeah. uh, light, lighting of the sails at Vivid Sydney 2019. What an amazing project.
1: Yeah, that one was super fun to work on. Um not related to silent partners though, but my previous life i I spent eight years with Maxon doing training and also kind of their community outreach within North America. and through that I, I got to meet like a lot of really talented artists. so when I did go freelance it it really opened up a lot of opportunities for me to to get onto cool projects.
0: So how did you become a trainer for Maxon?
1: That one was kind of accident. <laughs> um actually like in sometimes i think my whole career is is kind of accidents where where i just kind of say yeah why not to things you know you are kind of going through and and you see something cool and you're like sure that sounds like a good idea but yeah like i i taught myself 3d when i was in high school back in 2000 maybe like 98 sort of area and out of high school i had no clue that you know this could be a career so instead of Following the whole 3D thing, I kind of went and studied painting and sculpture instead. And then after I finished that, realized that it's kind of hard to make money like that. And uh, one of my friends from high school had actually started working at Maxon at one point and recommended me as a trainer when they were looking for people. So that kind of like started the whole thing where it's like, oh, this is this is kind of a possibility. And then eight years down the line, I enjoyed teaching people, but I also just really wanted to be making this stuff like full time. So that's that's how I got here. (laughs)
0: Was that kind of your segue into a freelance career as an animator?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think so. As I was working at Maxon, I did have a lot of time to kind of pick up side projects and things like that. And along the way, I definitely had a chance to work with some very talented people at that point, too. And I think all of that kind of helped me to switch over from that old mentality I had out of high school, like oh, you know, like, I'm just going to be training people and that. That'll be my life to more of the, I can actually support myself off of this. And the VMA project specifically was kind of a a fun full circle for me because I think seven years ago I had the pleasure of being a TD on a couple of music videos that were nominated for VMAs. Mm. Um, So it was kind of an interesting loop in my career there.
0: So you're just making these connections and then slowly, slowly building upon them, they become opportunities.
2: Yeah, I, I think uh, all people from our generation, uh, when uh, we couldn't study that in school, uh, we kind of all built our careers out of uh, <laughs> luck and, and random <laughs> opportunities.
0: <laughs> I, what I found as well is Patrick, you've really been quite community focused throughout your career. So a few years ago, you started Montreal in Motion, which is now a not-for-profit organization which brings together artists from many different backgrounds and disciplines.
1: Yeah, that one was was started with a couple of my friends. And I think part of it was was like we were all freelance at the time and we really wanted to have a way to, number one, make more connections, but also kind of expand what people in in Freelancer, like the digital media world, uh, see as part of the process. Um, because like you can work on a project and there's going to be an audio engineer, there's going to be an editor, somebody doing lighting, somebody doing post effects, like all these different areas. And it's really easy to kind of just stay in your own little bubble, like just one of those separate areas and kind of forget about the rest. And we really wanted to... Uh, get people to talk about things from all sides of the process. So kind of similar to to what you were talking about with this, right? Like so many people work on the project and everybody has a different perspective. And in Montreal, I think, I think we do have like a very large artist community and we really wanted to find a way to bring all of those people together.
0: So the, the VMAs was the first major award show in the US to be broadcast since the pandemic. So pretty big deal. So first up, Let's try and paint a picture of what the environment you were working in was like. So the virtual stage was created by XR Studios. What did it look like?
1: Never got to see the thing in person, but we did get to see <laughs> we did get to see a lot of, of videos of it. Essentially it was a three wall setup for the the back walls and then the floor. So definitely had like a, a bit more of like an enclosed feeling.
0: When you were working with your clients for the VMAs, how did you communicate your creative vision?
1: During the initial concepting phase, uh, we did have access to the XR Studio, not like the big VMA stage, but a, a smaller one. And with that, they kind of started with doing initial designs inside Notch because it was pretty easy to kind of move some cubes around, say, here's the buildings, here's the main stage, and then put that onto the server and get an idea of how it looked on stage even before we got to the actual production. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like that sort of thing definitely made the initial layout a lot easier. And then that included basic textures and some lighting to kind of get the overall feel for the project.
0: So to put together the virtual main stage, Claudine, you were heading up the 2D elements in After Effects and Patrick, you were working primarily in cinema 4D. And then you had Brett Bolton, who we'll be hearing from a little later in the podcast and Spencer Sterling on Notch. How did you guys organize yourselves as a unit?
1: It was, it was a little bit difficult coordinating everybody together. But I think in the end, we kind of got a a good flow going. Brett started with the initial layouts uh, that we were doing in the XR studio. He exported the layout, uh, at which point I took it into cinema, uh, split out all of the different buildings and started doing our UV layouts, which is more or less our PIX map. Once we kind of had the UVs slash Pixmap laid out. Then Claudine was building content for screens inside the world, uh, as well as helping with the the layout of the textures on the buildings, uh, which itself was a bit of a challenge since we had to integrate a Zoom feed. That was definitely something we had to go back and forth on as well. Like, what's the best layout? What's the best approach to manage to get all of this information going through? Like Spencer and, and Heath on our team, they... They are absolute brilliant when it comes to to problem solving with Notch and kind of
2: integrating
1: integrating things like they they're really the the core integration team for us. But once we kind of had that, it it wasn't so bad. Um, Essentially. I had split the C40 file into several different parts. And then that way, when we had notes and feedback coming in, I just had to export one file uh, that contained a few elements rather than having Brett reintegrate the entire scene again. So that definitely helped with streamlining the process a little bit.
0: And was this a workflow that you'd used before? Or was it something you tailored for the VMA's production?
2: Yeah, it was the first time, uh, like you were saying, that we, we kind of split the work that way. And uh, it, especially for a project that big, it was really the the right way to go.
0: Is there anything that you would do differently on this workflow if you were to do it again?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, there's there's things that I would like to do differently, but I think it's more knowing more about what we could have gotten away with i do think when we first started the project we were very focused on just the pure performance of things because the the actual technical requirements are i think our resolution is what like 2048 by 1440 something or like, it's, it's fairly high resolution, um, but we also need to hit 60 frames a second, and that has to be solid, because as soon as we drop below, then things start to drop out of alignment and it kind of pulls off the screen and ruins the effect. Um, so when we first dove into it, we set ourselves up with very strict sort of guidelines, and one of those was keep everything as low poly as possible. Um, have as much geometry merged together as possible and try to limit like live lighting that we have. And it, it kind of set us up good because we did have something that was very performant. But going back into it, you kind of get a better idea of where you could save performance and where you could kind of put more in.
0: Cool. And let's hear from Brett Bolton on how to optimize your notch scene for virtual productions
3: yeah yeah definitely the top uh, optimization thing that I found with this project was baking lighting. Like it was really cool to be able to build out the lighting for the scene and kind of get crazy with it, see your GPU milliseconds really ramp up, and then um just to bake everything out. And then once you have those, you know, diffuse maps, you can put those in your materials and still have other lighting that's affecting the scene. But once you do that, it's really cool just to be able to take all the lights and delete them or shut them off. And then you can see your performance just ramp back up without, you know, losing any of the look at all. So, yeah, baking lighting is definitely something that a lot of notch designers should look into. This is my first like big kind of project using baked lighting. I've done it for smaller things, you know, but this was like the first time I really saw the benefits of it.
0: There were so many elements to this virtual scene. Could you kind of summarize what the key to optimizing a scene this complex would be?
1: A lot of the work was what could we hide and what could we get done with textures alone? That's always the case when, when you're going with real time. You could have the most beautiful things that you want, but you still have to find a way to get it to run. And yeah, for us, that was definitely like setting those initial limits, like use as little geometry as possible. I'm pretty sure everybody that has ever gone onto TurboSquid or the like knows that the models that you get can be sketchy. So there would be a process of retopologizing topologizing stuff, uh, setting up UVs for that, baking down new textures, and then we could bring that into Notch.
0: And this might sound really obvious, but what do you gain from optimizing your scene?
1: Essentially, we just want something that has the fewest number of polygons possible so that we can be sure that the the GPU is not going to be stressed out by trying to handle just like the content itself. Because we still need to bring in streams from the media servers there's going to be performance that's lost when you're exposing parameters, things like that. Like mm. you need to have as much overhead as possible so you can really work with it in the end. Because mm-hmm. um, we needed to have the 60 frames per second to get smooth integration, and as soon as you know you drop below that, you're going to get little hiccups, um, and it's going to take a moment for the camera system to pick up again. And that's the other thing: like you have to optimize fairly heavily because. To get your separation between the back plate and front plate, you're essentially just copying your scene. And so you have to think like if your scene is already really heavy just on the one layer, as soon as you double that, again, you're gonna run into to some problems. It's really just like a, a practice of how much can you boil this down to the raw elements that you need. Also still try to hit a look,
0: yeah. Hit a look, yeah, I like that phrase, cool. <laughs> when I spoke to Az last week and asked him what was the necessity of having virtual productions in these COVID times, he said it's because of the gaping hole that uh, a, a lack of audience has created. And you guys address this in a really ingenious way for this production by incorporating the audience via Zoom. And um, it became a really important, prominent element within the main stage. What was the kind of seed of this concept?
2: Uh, It was an ask from the client. Uh, So yeah, at first we were kind of stressed about exactly how it would hit performance and that kind of stuff, or how far could we go design-wise, making it look like it's well integrated and everything. So it was a lot of challenges, but uh, I think in the end it, turned out to be
0: easier than we thought. And another element of the design is video of actual audience members on top of the building. Yeah,
2: Mm -hmm. we shoot, uh, I think it was 20 people or something. Mm -hmm. And and so we made them all fit. Well, we keyed them and tried to sync them because they had like specific actions to do, like either applaud, either be calm, either dance or jump or... Anyway, there was a... They were like directed to really do stuff at certain moments. We put them all in a, I think it was a 2K, mm-hmm. uh, raster. And then, uh, the guys from Notch would integrate them as, uh, I think it was not in, as 2D cards in the end, Patrick, right? Was it cloners or?
1: Uh, I mean, it's essentially the, the same thing, like it was just, it was just cloners used to scatter some 2D cards around the rooftops. And I think with that, uh, Spencer was using tile sheets to be able to kind of split the, the rendered video from just being one feed into each of the, the separate audience members.
0: The acts enter via um, a virtual stage door in the main video pillar. How did this work? How did you create that illusion?
1: Brett. He did the setup for the kind of infinite doorway, which was a, a pretty cool element. And I think his solution was was pretty good. Like it's all the whole thing is smoke and mirrors, right? So you find you find as many ways as you can to hide the things that don't work. And in that case, like there's no doorway going through the LED screen. So you kind of like make a front plate that covers more or less everything, let the let the performer get in behind there and then you open the door. And I'm sure he can go into more details about exactly how we achieved it, but it's a smart way of just finding out like, how do you fake these things as much as possible?
3: Oh yeah. The infinite doorway. That was a, that kind of, it was like XR inside XR. <laughs> it was like, uh, we took um, basically as a rendered texture because, uh, yeah, they wanted the doors to open up and then reveal the the talent that would come out. But they wanted this, like, the infinity tunnel look to go behind the doors as the doors swung open. Um, which, you know, at first we were like, okay, we'll just make a box inside the building. But had we done that, we would have had to cut more geometry in the back, make new cinema 4D models and all that. And also, from a side camera view, we would have been able to see this extended box in the background. Um, so... We were able to figure out a technique with uh, just a render to texture, taking the mapping from the position of the camera in perspective mapping a different scene of the Infinity Tunnel onto just a flat plane that was behind the doors. So that was a fun little uh, trick that we we had that actually worked pretty well.
0: When it comes to choosing what effects are going to go on the front plate and what's going to go on the back plate. Is it a similar process to setting the foreground and background of a scene on a traditional stage?
1: No. <laughs> <Like> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, really kind of, it's kind of similar in the sense that you're just taking all of your foreground elements and, and then you make sure they're specifically in the foreground and everything in the background is the background. But it comes down to to not knowing where that camera is going to go, and so
2: yeah, that can be tricky. Yeah, sometimes. like things can
1: look perfect when you're viewing it from the front, but then you would move over to the side and find out that you know this live prop that we had on the stage is covering all of the stuff that's supposed to be in the foreground, or like a foreground element uh, kind of slips out of the way and you can see through the underside of the stage. There's all these things where you just have no clue how things are going to end up layering on top of each other and breaking it up into the two separate layers. It has its own limits as well. Like you can't rotate so far or you break the effect. And
2: and- that's when the uh, rehearsals come in. Uh, really, uh, They're really useful for that because uh, either it can also be, you know, someone uh, walking on the stage and at that specific camera angle at that specific moment, with that specific element in front, it doesn't work and, but you couldn't have thought about it in advance. So that's, that's really useful to being, to be able to test uh, that kind of stuff live.
0: And when it came to those moments of testing, cause you guys weren't on site. So was it kind of members of your team testing it and then you getting live feedback and making changes, um, instantaneously?
2: Well, not as instantaneously, no. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's not that easy. But yeah, we had a live feed uh, of uh, what was going on in the room. Like it was super limited uh, and on a number of people because of COVID, of course. Mm. So I think there were only one member of our team that was allowed to go actually on the stage, and all the other ones were like in another room. So I know you guys didn't
0: get to experience a live reaction from the crowd like you would have at a normal live show. So I've cut together a few reactions from fans watching the Black Eyed Peas performance on the main stage. Shall we have a listen? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Those visuals are
1: fucking amazing. So like, I love how much they're playing with the production. I'm getting so much more creative since there's no, like, live audiences this year.
0: When when that UFO came out,
1: that was really
0: impressive. And then they came with that big burst of energy.
1: Space beam, moon man, alien UFOs, like it. I love how, like, they just have, like, the virtual audiences, they turn up on the side. Yo, I don't get the purpose of the UFO. Don't get the purpose of the
2: UFO. (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. I think I think the UFO was one of those moments for me too where I was like uh where I realized that like the the restrictions we placed on on how much geometry we threw into the scenes was was too much um, cuz I I think the UFO alone was maybe three times the the size of the city in terms of like polycounts. And I was just like, okay, yeah, like, we probably didn't need to go that low. So, because a
0: lot of the performances had their own specific segment, like the Miley Cyrus performance, which some of your other team members worked on. How come the Black Eyed Peas performance was on the main stage? It wasn't meant to be that way.
1: Yeah, I feel like that one kind of falls under the... uh, we have to be prepared to do anything and everything last minute. Mm. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like we had the stage and we had like the ability to just put content on there. You know, Good solution within the the time frame that we had.
2: And also a fun fact, well, fun fact, it's not a fun fact, but funny story <laughs> say, uh, is that... Uh, yeah, they had like issues on set because of COVID. Like one day, one of the dancers came out positive, so oh, they wow. had to make everyone get out for like at least thirty-six hours. I think clean everything. So it was another layer of complexity to the whole uh, the whole project.
0: So crazy when you think about it like that. One element from that Black Eyed Peas performance that I really love is that there's um, a hologram, like a sci-fi hologram in the sky of Nicky that- Jam. Um, I thought that was a really interesting way of making him part of the performance. <laughs> Thank you. Cool. And yeah, what's quite interesting, like obviously the spaceship—you know—you wouldn't get that at a normal VMAs. Um, <laughs> there's so many more opportunities for storytelling when you're working virtually.
2: Yeah, of course, that's the fun part. You can really, especially for, uh, for example, for me who doesn't do 3D, or it's like. Oh, now I can imagine worlds in real time and 3D and camera movings and stuff. It's exciting.
0: And um, what do you guys feel is unique to working on a virtual production?
1: I think the big thing would be the, the immersion. Like definitely in, in a classic sort of concert setup, you have your performer on a stage and what you're creating is behind them. It's a world that you're creating, but it's still very separate from the performer and being able to do the whole XR thing in a live or semi live sort of situation, it definitely gives you a bigger sense of immersion. And I think I think what'll be interesting is is how does this change when performances can be, you know, in front of twenty, thirty thousand people again in a stadium.
2: Yeah, that's gonna be an interesting shift again.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like, are are we doing concerts then that are on these giant LED stages and you can have cameras going around and then feeds being displayed on the side to the rest of the crowd in the stadium so that you kind of get both of these worlds going on at the same time?
2: So yeah, I guess so. the next step will, will be to have to make it interesting for both.
1: <laughs> yeah, like how do we bring that same experience, but into a real world uh, concert? Yes,
0: yeah, so you kind of answered my next question, which is in, in the future, do you see more productions adopting this workflow to cater to a global audience?
2: Yeah, I guess Patrick kind of answered, but I think so then uh, we're going to see how, how it all evolves. It can change really fast. And what advice
0: would you give to someone who wants to produce a virtual production?
1: Have access to a lot of money.
2: Yeah. And be prepared for anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's great advice.
1: Yeah. Like I, I think the biggest hurdle for, for somebody that wants to get into it is really having access to a stage. Yeah. Um, like that, that is, if you don't have access to the stage, you're kind of, you're kind of limited. Like you can try green screen setups and things like that and get, similar experiences but even with a green screen you still need to have like if you want a moving camera you still need to have the camera equipment that's going to be able to feed back into D3 and into Notch to get everything tracking properly um and so like that side of the the process is i think like kind of the biggest limiting factor to just anybody being able to dive into it um, like i do think if you have Notch you have enough to to kind of start going with it right like you have the main tool that you need to produce the content but you don't really have the tool to film the content
0: and it's not something you can achieve with your home television
1: well i mean there's there's definitely people that have like because i i think this sort of immersive experience has been going on since you know the the late 80s with people trying out different stuff and and even like like with virtual production they had cave systems for for decades and and even i think maybe the precursor to the current xr experiences some guys that were working with projectors to kind of project a a virtual world into a room so i think all of those things like they're things that we know how to work with but yeah it's kind of the evolution and things have gotten a little smoother
0: Well, Thanks for giving me a taster of how this production came together. And there's so many moving parts, but it's it's, it's so many moving parts. (laughs) But it's been really insightful to find out about how you guys made it happen and in such a short time frame. Thanks so much for your time today.
2: Well, thank you for inviting
0: us. Thank you, too. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, guys. Bye now. Bye. 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 Check out more work from Silent Partners at silentpartnerstudio.com or give them a follow on Instagram at silentpartnerstudio. If you're a Montreal-based artist, then check out Montreal in Motion at gomim.com or follow on Instagram at mimevent. You can read a synopsis of today's episode and check out photos and videos from the VMAs at notch.one forward slash showcase. If you enjoyed hearing from Brett Bolton and want to hear more, then you're in luck. Next week, Brett and I talk about his personal project, Potential Energy, which aired at last year's Splinter event. Here's a little taster of the show. How do you make yourself accountable when it comes to your own personal projects?
3: That's the tough one. Um, Deadlands are always good, like setting a show, as kind of scary as it is, like having the show date is always really good for me. Otherwise, it's, you know, if you're just working on a song until you feel like it's done, it's going to can keep making that song forever (laughs) you know new versions new iterations of the visuals so having deadlines is definitely good for me even if it's a little stressful thanks for listening